Scripture reading uh, this morning, we have an Old Testament text in Ezekiel, verses, uh, chapter 17, verses 22 to 24. Just a couple verses here. Uh, we'll see an image here of, uh, of a tree growing and the, uh, the uh, birds of heaven coming to it, which is an image we'll see our Lord Jesus take up in Matthew 13 in a moment. Ezekiel 17, though, verses 22 to 24. This is God's word. Thus says the Lord God, I, take, I will take also one of the highest branches of the high cedar and set it out. I will crop off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one and will plant it on a high and prominent mountain. On the mountain height of Israel I will plant it, and it will bring forth boughs and bear fruit and be a majestic cedar. Under it will dwell birds of every sort. In the shadow of its branches they will dwell, and all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree and exalted the low tree, dried up the green tree and made the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and have done it. And over to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, uh, picking up at verse 24. Another parable he put before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till all was leavened. All these things... Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables, and without a parable, he did not speak to them, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil, the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth, Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid, and for joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had 
and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore. And they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said to them, Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes, Lord. And then he said to them, Therefore, every every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we bow before you and humbly ask you would open our hearts to your word. Lord, your word is the living word. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword which pierces down to our very hearts. Father, we pray that you would uh, come and by your spirit and your word be at work in us to convict us, to challenge us, to heal us, to grow us, to encourage us. All of it, Lord, in our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would show us him and strengthen our faith in him. We pray in his name. Amen. You can think of Matthew 13 as a, as a hinge in Matthew's gospel on, on which much of the gospel turns. Um, you can tell that it is, it is this hinge from a couple of things here. One of, one of them is that there are five major teaching blocks that Jesus has in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, five discourses, five sections of teaching that are concentrated, focused sections of teaching in his Gospel. And Matthew 13 is one of them, and it's number three. So it's right in the middle of those things. Uh, another way you can tell that Matthew 13 has a, is a crucial hinge point in the Gospel is just because of the, the context. Up to this point, um, Jesus has been preaching and teaching and healing and uh, proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. But opposition has been steadily increasing. And, and starting with chapter 13, the opposition is really going to start coming to a head. And, and his, his words are going to be more directed towards his disciples. And there's going to be more language of judgment as well that he's speaking uh, as Israel is, is, un, is showing their, their unbelief in him. And, and it's right here in chapter 13 that, that we get all these parables told by our Lord Jesus Christ right here at this hinge. Um, so there's, there's this hinge going on here in the gospel in Matthew chapter 13, but there are also hinges inside chapter 13, two of them. Um, first one we saw last week, it was the middle of the sandwich. I'm changing the metaphor this week. It's a hinge now. Um, uh, it's in that first parable, parable of the sower. Um, it's that, that parable is split into two, right? You get the parable and the interpretation of the parable and right in the middle, the purpose of parables, the hinge on which it turns, right? The point that Jesus is talking about. And he gives that purpose there uh, as, uh, you know, he's speaking in parables because he's going to harden people in their unbelief. It's hard to hear that. But, but parables are a means of concealing the truth from those who don't want to hear it. But then he goes on and he tells more parables, seven more parables throughout this chapter. Um, uh, so, so there are eight total in the chapter. And in, right in the middle of, of four on one side, four on the other, the first four directed at the multitudes, the last four directed at his disciples in particular, right in the middle of all that is another little hinge. Again, telling us about the purpose of parables. It's verse 34 and 35. If you have the text there, I encourage you to look at it with me. Verse 34 and 35, we get another reason for why parables. Verse 34 and 35. Um, 
All these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables. And without a parable, he did not speak to them. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. So once again, he's saying, here's the purpose behind the parables. Um, And it's a quote from Psalm 78. Psalm 78 is this psalm that gives the greatest hits of Israel's history. All the highlights of of God's redemptive work uh, for for his people. And uh, it's a psalm that also warns the people not to be blind and deaf to what God's doing. And all those things. Um, it, it's, a, it's a psalm which reveals, not conceals, but reveals. And Jesus here, as he references this, he talks about, I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. He's, he's revealing through parables as well. And so we have these, these two points of what parables do right here in Matthew 13. They conceal on the one hand from those who don't want to hear what Christ has to say. But on the other hand, They graciously and powerfully reveal the gospel to those who do want to hear. So they they, they either harden your heart or they humble your heart. They they, they either make you stick your fingers in your ears because you don't want to listen to anything else that Jesus has to say because you're offended at him. Or they make you sit on the edge of your seat, lean forward, ears perked up, intent on hearing every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's, that's the function the parables have. Now, loved ones, twice now in the chapter, God has told us what parables are for. The, the point for us is you can't sit back, put your feet up, and half listen to Jesus. Um, you listen to him all the way. You're either in or you're out. You, 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 you listen to him with your whole heart. Not just coming, you know, the words, you understand what he's saying in your intellect, but, but pervading you, right? Changing you, getting to work in your heart, your emotions, your will, your choices, your actions. Um, Jesus demands all of our attention. As he tells us these parables, which reveal to us the wonderful works of God. And what does he want all our attention on? It's the kingdom of heaven. Here in these parables... Uh, which, which it's so imperative that we hear. He teaches us three lessons about the kingdom of heaven. Uh, these are three things that are time, at times we, we struggle to understand, but three things which are absolutely necessary for us to understand and grasp hold of and live by as disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom. So the first lesson that we're, that we're going to look at this morning is, is kingdom growth. Uh, The first lesson, kingdom growth. Jesus wants to teach us here that the kingdom of God grows God's way, not our way. That it grows by his wisdom, not ours, by his power, not by ours. Um, He he gives us these parables here. He gives us this parable about the mustard seed. Um, uh, Mustard seeds are tiny, one-sixteenth of an inch, approximately. Um, and uh, in Palestine at that time, this is the smallest cultivated seed that, 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 that they knew. Um, so, and, and it's interesting. Jesus doesn't say it, it's a handful of these tiny little seeds. It's one tiny mustard seed. You can barely see. And, and, and picture it. A man takes a single seed and he goes out into a field. You can barely see him standing off there in the field. And he takes that seed. You can't see it at all. And he plants it in the ground. And Jesus says, that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. He then uses another picture to make the same point here. He says the kingdom of heaven is like some yeast, some leaven, which you, you stick in the bread, though, that you're working on. 
you stick it in just a little bit of yeast, and then it disappears into the dough. You don't see it anymore. It's not anything, you know, exciting. No fanfare or fireworks when you put the yeast in the dough. Right? But what happens? Gradually, that little bit of yeast pervades the whole dough, changes it, right? It, grows, it, makes, it makes it to grow. This is the metaphor. These, these two things, a mustard seed and, and some yeast. Is that what you would have picked to say this is what the kingdom of heaven is like? Um, this is the world-ending kingdom of God coming in. The reign of Jesus Christ. The reign of peace. Salvation breaking out. Right? If we didn't know better, we'd probably expect it to look like a Marvel superhero movie when the kingdom of God comes. Right? The climax, the superheroes and the villains and this stuff going everywhere. Right? But Jesus says, mustard seed, yeast. Um, the Jews were not expecting this. Right? Just as, as we would not expect this. They were expecting this dramatic and climactic clash between God's kingdom coming in, defeating the enemies, bringing judgment, and then bringing this wonderful reign of peace. No more insignificance for the Jews. No more suffering under the hands of our enemies. Um, and instead, they just get Jesus coming and teaching and preaching and, and healing. And I, we, we, I think we are tempted to wrestle with the same question, right? If the kingdom of God has come, if Jesus has really already begun his kingdom, then, then why does the church still seem so insignificant? If Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, why do his enemies so often seem to have more power than, than his friends in this world? If Jesus really has established his kingdom, why does it look so small and so weak? We want to see results. We want things that are obvious. We want to see explosive growth, um, influence, and power. What is a kingdom without these things worth? It's one of the challenges of discipleship, loved ones. Jesus, of course, as he comes bringing his kingdom, comes uh, quietly. He's not rich or powerful. He's just a carpenter's son. He comes to obey. He comes to suffer. He comes to die. He comes to be buried and then to rise. He doesn't come ambitiously uh, to, to, to get attention and to, and to, and to bring in this, this, um, this uh, humanly speaking dramatic change. He comes to obey his Father and to die for our sins. This is the marvelous wisdom of our God. He uses what is weak to shame the strong. He uses what is small and despised in the world's eyes to accomplish his purposes so that the glory is all is all his. Loved ones, there's a tremendous encouragement for us here. This is how the kingdom of God began, right? Like a mustard seed being planted, quietly. But it's the power of God at work. Um, uh, it's encouragement to us that we don't, even still, we, we might expect to see, see uh, that the church is going to continue to see growth that, that often looks quiet and out of the way. Um, but the power of God is at work. So the kingdom of God starts small, but it doesn't stay small. Um, it grows. This is also part of the parable here. Uh, Jesus teaches us that it grows way out of proportion. The mustard seed turns into a 12-foot tree that's big enough uh, that, that birds can come and, and nest in the branches. And Jesus says it's going to be the same with the kingdom of heaven, that you won't see it at first as it's planted in the ground, but it's going to grow, and then you will see it. Um, right? It's just Jesus and a few disciples uh, and, then, and then a few more. And, and then Pentecost happens, and, 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 it's, and it's more. And then the gospel goes out to the ends of the earth. And slowly but surely, the Christians start telling other Christians about this kingdom. And the gospel continues to grow. And then eventually it goes beyond the bounds of the Roman Empire. And Rome ends in dust 
But the gospel of Jesus Christ and his kingdom continues and it grows and it goes on. This is the fulfillment we see of the prophecy there in Ezekiel, which we read earlier, where all the nations are pictured as coming to this kingdom uh, to to, to rest here in in this kingdom. Um, and, And we see this, brothers and sisters, even as we see hardship, persecution and suffering and opposition to the kingdom of Christ, we also see this explosive growth. All around the world, the kingdom of God is, is advancing as uh, men and women, boys and girls from every tribe, tongue, and nation are coming to faith in Christ. From Limington to Libya, they're coming to Him. All around this world. And notice, loved ones, um, the, the growth is inevitable. Um, the, growth, the growth happens organically. It happens all by itself, if you will. No, not by our power, but God's power at work in it. Uh, this is in the DNA of a mustard seed, right? It's going to grow. It's going to happen. Um, this is what yeast does. It expands in the dough. And Jesus is saying this is going to happen with the kingdom of God as well. It has its own power. The power of God is at work, right? Romans 1.16, Paul writes, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Paul says again, 1 Corinthians 3.6, God gives the growth. So the kingdom grows by, by the power of God great reformer Martin Luther recognized this. He looked around at the explosive growth of the kingdom in, in his day through much of his own ministry, and he said, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. I did nothing. The word did everything. Right? This, this word of, of the gospel, this kingdom of God, grows by his power. So be encouraged. The gospel will grow. The kingdom will grow. Not by your power, but by God's power. And nothing will stop its advance or defeat the purpose of Christ. Nothing in your heart or your home or your church or this world. So this is the first theme. The kingdom grows. The second theme we see that Jesus brings out for us, the second lesson that we see here in these parables is, is judgment. Um, we get two parables which hone in on this. Um, two parables which reveal that judgment will come with this kingdom as well. The first is the story Jesus tells about the wheat and the weeds, the, the wheat and the tares. Um, he tells this parable in 24 through 30. Then he gives its interpretation a little later in verses 36 through 43. In the parable, a man plants some wheat in his field. His enemy comes and plants some tares in there. Now, this is probably darnel. It's a poisonous weed that looks a lot like wheat when it's little, but as it grows, it, it, it eventually it, you realize it's not wheat. Um, but uh, the, 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 the servants ask you know, the master, should we, should we take it out? And he says, no, leave it. Let them grow together, the wheat and the tares together, until the final harvest. Because if you try to take the, the weeds out, it'll just uproot the wheat that you want to grow. And then the harvest comes. And at that point, uh, the, 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 the two are separated. Jesus gives the interpretation. Uh, he says the field is the world. Jesus is the one planting the seeds. The seeds are not the word of God this time, as they were the parable of the sower. Now the seeds are the elect. These are the sons of the kingdom, the, the souls of the elect. Um, and they begin to grow in his kingdom. But then the devil comes, and the devil plants other seeds. He plants the sons of the wicked one. But Jesus says they're going to be left to grow side by side together until the final day of judgment. And then the other parable of judgment that we get here is the parable of, of the fishing net, which brings in all kinds, and then they are separated, uh, some to judgment and some to reward. Um, three lessons that we see here about judgment from these parables. Number one, 
first of all, we need to see that the kingdom of heaven comes in two stages. Um, that, uh, that is especially the second stage of the kingdom that will be full of God's judgment on, on the wicked. Um, one of the big disappointments people had about Christ's ministry was there wasn't enough judgment in it. Uh, we want judgment on the Romans. We want, we want judgment on our enemies. We want, we want to the final, uh, final judgment on all those people that we're worried about. So we don't have to worry about them anymore. Uh, John the Baptist predicts this about Jesus' ministry in Matthew 3.12. He says, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. There's, there's this anticipation, and John's not wrong to have this anticipation, that there will be judgment when the kingdom of God comes. The Old Testament sets up this expectation as well. Prophecy of Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Okay, so far so good, right? Those are all the things we see Jesus doing. But then the prophecy continues, and the day of vengeance of our God. So the Old Testament expectation is the kingdom brings final salvation and final judgment at the same time. But then Jesus' ministry... So much of it is the salvation, the proclamation of peace, a note of judgment, but the promise of judgment is really future as Jesus comes. And he shows that there is this different perspective we need to have, that the judgment is largely going to come in the future. And so Jesus is teaching his disciples, he's teaching us this vital lesson for us, that there are the two stages to the way his kingdom comes. That the, the, the kingdom comes first, it, it begins, it's inaugurated, but, it, but it's not consummated. The harvest is planted when Christ comes, so the kingdom starts. But the harvest isn't completed until the last day. Um, so it is already not yet kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And th- this leads to the second thing, loved ones, that we see Jesus teaching us in these parables. And, and that is that um, the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of Satan are going to be side by side until the last day of judgment. Um, we live, yes, in the kingdom of heaven, in a sense. But we also still live side by side with those who are under the, the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of this world. And so there's going to be conflict and opposition. Right? And that conflict will cut across cultures and, and, and families and, and churches the visible church of Christ. Um, and, and indeed, that dividing line between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of this world runs through our very hearts, doesn't it? We're already saved. We belong to our Lord Jesus Christ, and yet there are still sinful tendencies in us and struggles inside of us. And so this is all shaping our expectations. Christ wants you to know it's, it's going to be an uphill road. It's gonna, it's gonna, you're going to have to wait for the harvest. Don't expect it to be easy and don't expect that you won't meet with opposition. Expect difficulty and persecution. Don't expect that you'll arrive at some point in this life or that the church will arrive at some point in this life. Not yet. So we need our expectations shaped. But Jesus also gives us hope um, here that one day the kingdom will come in all its final fullness. He concludes these parables, both of them, with a warning of judgment, um, uh, which is both a warning to us and a promise to us. 
Um, the warning is clear, isn't it? He paints this terrifying picture of judgment, verses 40 and 42. He says, Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. He uses the same language again at the end of the parable of the fishing net in verses 47 to 50. Thrown into a furnace of fire at the end of the age. Um, it's terrifying. It's, it, it's horrific imagery. Jesus is, is not pulling any punches here. He's, he's showing us the realities of, of the final judgment that will come. And he wants to warn us, loved ones. He's warning us about hell itself. Um, he knows the reality of hell. And he wants to impress it on our hearts. Now, so often we're shy about this doctrine. Right? We're too in love with our own feelings of self-worth. Uh, and, and we don't want to hear about the reality of hell. We're, we're too um, ignorant and unaware of the majesty and holiness of God. Um, can there really be a hell? An eternal place of punishment for the wicked? Is that really just? Is it really fair? Our Lord Jesus, tender, compassionate, loving Lord Jesus, says yes. There must be, because that's how horrible our sin is. Jesus says that um, all the wicked will be thrown into the fiery furnace. It's tempting, perhaps, to hear Jesus say the wicked. We get this caricature. Hitler, Stalin... Um, not us, right? But notice, Jesus, as he's telling this parable of judgment, the first one is to the multitudes. The second one, the second parable of judgment, is just for his disciples. Warning them. Right? He has this need that he feels to warn his closest circle of disciples that the wicked will end in hell. He, gives us, he tells us who the wicked are here um, in, in, in the parable. He identifies them as those who offend and those who practice lawlessness in verse 41. Those who offend. Um, it doesn't mean those who hurt his feelings, right, the way we might use that word. Well, that, that offended me. But he means those who offend the holiness of God. Those whose sin is, is an affront to God, an insult to the holiness of God. And that, that's all of us. Every one of you and me are an offense and an affront to Him by our selfishness and our pride and our rebellion. Hell is not too much for me, for my sin, or for you. We have broken His law at every single point and insulted Him and, and fought Him and hated Him at every single point, and hell is exactly what we all deserve. Jesus describes that, warns us about that warns us about that judgment. But then he also gives us this picture of these others, the righteous. And at the end of the parable of the wheat and tares, he, he talks about the day of judgment as something to look forward to. Um, eagerly, excited for it, um, because it's going to be the day when the righteous finally go home and enjoy the kingdom of God and, and, and all its perfection when, when uh, Jesus says the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. What, what, what a contrast. Um, so the parable is, you see, it's forcing the question to us, which are you? The wicked or the righteous? There's no third way. You can't, you can't not decide. Um, uh, how do you answer? Wh which are you? are you? Are you bound for hell? Wicked? 
Or are you one of these righteous who is going to shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father? How can we be righteous? That, that, that is such an important question. It's the question. How can we be righteous and accepted? Look at the moral chaos of your own heart and mine. How can we be called the sons of God and brought into His kingdom and be called righteous? The answer, of course, is, is our Lord Jesus Himself standing there speaking this parable. Um, we don't gain access to the kingdom of heaven through trying to make ourselves righteous. Because we, we can't. We will fail. Every, every good thing we try to do is still going to be soaked in selfishness and sin. Um, and so what do we do? Well, we run to our Lord Jesus. Remember his other teaching as well, loved ones. How does he start preaching about this kingdom of heaven? Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Right? Those who know their need. The spiritually bankrupt. Those who know they have no righteousness in themselves. That will open heaven's door to them. That they're full of only sin. But they come to Jesus and they're poor in spirit. And he says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, th- th- this is exactly why our Lord Jesus came. Um, to be perfectly righteous in our place. To, to not be a sinner. To be the Son of God. The Son of the kingdom who perfectly obeyed God's law. So that He could take the wrath of God for our sins and He could trade it and give us instead His righteousness and we can get His reward. This is what He holds out to those who are in uh, the, the, those of His kingdom. He, he holds out to you. He offers to you to be counted as righteous as Christ Himself is righteous. Come to Him by faith. And you're not the wicked anymore. Not because of you, but because of Him. You come to Him by faith. You accept His sacrifice for you. You accept His, His righteousness for you. And God sees you as no less righteous than His own Son. And then judgment is transformed from this terrifying thing to suddenly a promise of your perfect peace and salvation and final rest in Christ and His kingdom. That's the second theme. And the third theme we see We saw kingdom growth, kingdom judgment. The third thing we see in these parables, kingdom treasure. We've been talking about the kingdom. We've been talking about righteousness and and the the, the glories of being brought into the kingdom by the grace of God. Um, How how much is that worth? This is what Jesus' parables here about the treasure of the kingdom focus on for us. How much is this kingdom worth? Verse 44, he compares the kingdom to a treasure hidden in a field. Um, and in the ancient world, uh, this is sometimes the way they would, they would hide their valuables. They'd go bury it in the field. But then sometimes you might misplace it and uh, the field might be sold. Someone else might buy it. Anyway, someone finds this treasure unclaimed in a field. And the general rule was finders keepers. Um, but just to be sure, this, this, this man sees how much this treasure is worth. And he says, I'm going to go buy that field so that I am sure I have the legal rights to that treasure. And it's worth so much, he's going to give whatever cost it takes to purchase that field and to own the treasure that he's found in that field. The second parable about the treasure here is making a very similar point. We get this pearl merchant, and he finds this one pearl. And he sees it's worth more than every other pearl he's ever seen in his life and more than any pearl he'll ever see again. And he gives up everything, sells everything to gain that one pearl. Um, The point of both parables is just how much the kingdom of heaven is worth. How valuable is the kingdom? 
Consider, consider what, what, what is the kingdom? What do we get in the kingdom? Um, forgiveness of sins. You get a record of righteousness. You get a clean conscience in the kingdom of heaven. Um, you, you, don't, you don't get the, uh, the accumulating burden of guilt and shame. You don't live under the wrath of God. You live under the smile of God. In the kingdom of heaven, you are made God's son, given a place in his home, a place at his table, an inheritance in him, uh, a perfect inheritance that will never fade or, or, or be taken away. Um, you, you, you live in the presence of God. You, you live with a sense of his love and peace that, that fills your heart and, and joy in him. Um, it, when you come to the kingdom, you get the very Holy Spirit in you. You get resurrection life already springing up inside you and the promise of resurrection life that will even transform your body at the last, at the last day. Um, you get a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You get the promise of that day of salvation when no more tears, no more sorrow or grief or pain. Um, you, you get freedom from the, the, the power of sin in your life and the promise of the freedom from the very presence of sin as well. You get the church. Brothers and sisters who love you and care for you and pray for you and encourage you. Um, all, all this you get in the kingdom. You get um, God himself, the infinite creator, as your friend forever, inseparable bond of love uh, with, with him. You get our Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that God has to give, he gives in Christ in his kingdom. Everything that God possesses, that he has, he gives to those in his kingdom. What is that worth? There's a follow-up question, though. We've been saying, is the kingdom valuable? Yes. But is it valuable to you? What would you give for the kingdom? Is it precious to you? This is Christ's point here, isn't it? What does it take to get this treasure? To buy the pearl of price? We get this paradox here. Um, it, takes, it takes nothing in one sense, and it takes everything at the same time, doesn't it? Um, you, you, you can't earn the kingdom. You receive it as a gift. You receive it by faith. There's nothing you do to, to go out and work and earn it and pay for it by yourself. It's given to you graciously from the hand of God. You accept it by faith. You receive it with open hands. So the kingdom costs nothing. Come, buy wine and milk eat and, and, and drink and enjoy the feast God's laid out without price, Isaiah 55. But at the same time, coming to the kingdom costs you everything. Everything, loved ones. Not, not, not just some things. Everything. Coming to Christ costs you nothing and everything. Um, in order to lay hold of Christ, you have to let go of everything else. In order to accept Jesus, you must reject everything else. Right? This, is what, this is the point of the parables. Sell everything to gain the treasure, Jesus is saying. Um, the, Jesus is giving us the picture book version of what Paul writes in Philippians 3. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because, uh, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul, Paul's point, Christ's point here, nothing can compare with the Lord Jesus Christ in his kingdom. Nothing can, nothing can compete, nothing can measure up, nothing can rival him. No money 
or pleasure or security or relationship. Anything can compete with what he offers. And so he's worth. He's worth it all. So, so let, let go of it. He calls you to do that. And it's not an optional part of Christianity. You know, there, there, there's discipleship. Here's our basic discipleship plan, and, and here's our premium discipleship plan. That's not how Christ works. Take Christ and joyfully let go of everything else. Now, I'm not saying that you can't love Jesus and at the same time love your family or your work or your hobbies or the good gifts he gives you. Um, but but, but, to, but to, to, to reject everything and accept Christ is that you love him and every other thing you love becomes subsumed under that love. Not, not a second place love, but everything becomes ordered by and underneath and, and in the context of that love for Christ and that commitment to Christ and his kingdom. Um, th- this is of the essence uh, of faith. There's a nice acronym for faith. Um, forsaking all, I take him. Faith, F-A-I-T-H. Forsaking all, I take him. I, re- I turn from sin, and I turn from idolatry, and I turn from other loves and other saviors, and, and, I, and I take him, and only him, because all is found in him. Loved ones, this doesn't come easily or naturally to us. How can Our hearts are addicted to other loves, so how can we turn? How, how can we let go of everything else, reject everything else, and, and take Christ? Um, I'm sure you felt the difficulty of that, the call of that sacrifice and that discipleship. We can only do this when we see what Christ himself is and what he's done. Um, Because when we open our eyes and and see that the king of this kingdom of heaven, Christ himself, who is calling me to forsake all and and, and take him, forsook all to take me. Um didn't grasp on to place of glory in heaven, but humbled himself and was made a man and, and came down. Um, he, 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 he calls us on, because of his sacrifice, right? because he forsook all to, to love us and take us and have us for himself. He, he lays aside his glory for a time to become humble and become a man and suffer and die for us. He comes quietly and he comes humbly, he comes meekly and obeys his father. He endures the cross for us, right? He's forsaking all to obey his father, yes, and also because he loves his bride. He loves you, and he's coming to take you to himself, make you his own. This is how we love, because he first loved us. This is how we treasure, because he first treasured us. So Jesus turns to his disciples, um, he, he tells them these parables. Shows them these things, and then he turns to them and he gives them one final little parable to close it all out. He, he says to them in verse 51, Have you understood all these things? And they, they say yes. Maybe they're overestimating their own understanding. Um, but I think they do understand some and much of what he's saying, the kernel of what he's saying. And it's going to grow, of course. Their understanding is going to grow. But they say, they say yes. Uh, good answer. Um, we should say the same, right? Lord, yes, I want to understand. I understand. I want, help me understand more. Um, but, but then he says, um, do you understand these things? Because uh, right, that's the point. Hearing him doesn't mean just hearing him, but understanding him. That was the point of the parable of the sower last week as well. Um, do you understand? Are you going to trust, follow, treasure Christ? Not just hear this word and walk out no different than when you came in, but understand what he's saying and treasure him and treasure him above everything else. 
And then he, then he tells him this little very, that parable at the very end of it all. And he says, if you do understand these things, share it. It's a treasure. Share it. If you've understood the way the kingdom comes and grows, small but grows to mighty things. Um, if you've understood that, uh, that, that the kingdom judgment is, is coming and that if you run to Christ, that judgment will become a, a great salvation for you. And if you've understood the worth and the treasure of the kingdom, just how valuable it is and how much it matters for everyone, share it. Share the treasure. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for Christ, for his word, for his uh, penetrating insights. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for the way the gospel comes and, and, and changes us. Lord, we pray that by your grace you would take this word and make it to bear fruit in us. Lord, let us not be those who don't understand. Let us be those who hear. Lord, work in us faith, hope, and love as we respond to this word of our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.